the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. I am not alone because my friend Sam Maupin is engineering. James Blend is producing, and we're glad to have you with us. Today, we'll talk with Lois Anderson. She is the uh, executive director of Oregon Right to Life. Uh, we're going to talk with the uh, annual Death with Dignity annual report that was released uh, earlier, telling us uh, how this unfortunate law is being practiced in the state of Oregon. <clears throat> we'll also talk with Mark Moyer. He's the William P. Harris Chair of Military History at Hillsdale College. He's also the author of Triumph Reimagined, the Vietnam War, 1965 to 1968. And there are lessons to be learned about leadership under these sorts of conflicts that he suggests our current administration and military leaders could benefit by. We'll talk with him about that. Both of them, in fact, in the next hour of today's program. But first, to look at some of the day's news. I I don't know about you, but I'm feeling a little tired. Daylight saving time. And am I just wrong or didn't Oregon, uh, didn't we vote to have permanent daylight saving time? Well, this weekend, of course, Oregonians sprang forward once more. Despite the uh, characteristic gloom of a Pacific Northwest Monday in March, the change to daylight saving time should make for a, I don't know, a perceptible change in where the sun is when you get up and when you go back to bed. Well, KGW ran an informal poll during its sunrise show on Monday. That was, of course, yesterday. And viewers responded overwhelmingly that they weren't fans of changing clocks. A more specific poll from YouGov found that 62% of Americans surveyed are done with it. Only 21% wanted to keep it. Now, despite the uh, characteristic gloom across the U.S., these time changes hap- happen twice a year, every year, despite the fact that most people resent them. But there remains some confusion about whether to keep daylight saving time year round, making for more sunlight in the evenings. And I'm all for more sunlight in the evenings or a standard time, which would mean more sunlight in the mornings in the Pacific Northwest. That can make for a pretty substantial difference. Well, keeping daylight saving time would mean that the, the sun wouldn't come up until almost 9 a.m. in January. Uh, But there would be more sunlight in the afternoons, fewer sunsets before 5 p.m. Staying on standard time, which is what we uh, currently have during the winter, would mean that um, the sun would come up very early in the summer, around 4.30 a.m., and it would go down earlier instead of sticking around until 9 p.m. Now, the same poll, the YouGov poll, found that people prefer later sunrises and sunsets, About half of Americans want to stay on permanent daylight saving time instead of standard time. Well, that tends to be what lawmakers have pushed for as well. Last year, the Senate unanimously passed the Sunshine Protection Act, which would put the U.S. on permanent daylight saving time. However, that bill stalled in the House. So didn't happen. U.S. Senator Marco Rubio, he's from Florida, has introduced the bill again this year. Oregon Senator Ron Wyden is the co-sponsor, 
as is U.S. Senator Patty Murray from the state of Washington. Now, you may be asking yourself, didn't Oregon already vote on this? Well, yes, it did. And so did Washington. And yet here we are again. So why are we still changing clocks and how did we get here? Well, going way back to the beginning, Congress passed the Uniform Time Act in 1966. It established rather the daylight saving time change nationwide. Oregon was already on board, having done the same four years earlier. We're always just a little ahead. The idea was to turn clocks forward one hour on the last Saturday in April, uh, then turn them back the last Sunday in October. It was designed to help people make better use of the daylight as the sun rises and sets later and later throughout the uh, the summer. Uh, the official time change did and still does happen at 2 a.m. when most folks are asleep. In 2005, Congress extended the daylight saving time window, scheduling us to spring forward in March and to fall back in November. Plenty of people find the uh, frequent time shifts irritating, and some states like Arizona, they say we don't want any part of it. They don't observe daylight saving time at all. Well, in 2019, both the states of Oregon and Washington decided to take the page out of Arizona's book by eliminating the time change. But lawmakers instead passed a bill to keep both states on the daylight saving time schedule year round. In other words, the summer schedule would also be in effect for the winter. Well, California has been in a bit of a limbo, even though the original goal was for all three Western states to change together. California voters passed a proposition in 2018, giving the state... um, of the power to make daylight saving time permanent, but then the legislature sat on the issue. Well, as adopted, Oregon's bill actually relies on both Washington and California signing on before making the switch. So while, yes, Oregonians said yes to uh, year-round daylight saving time, unless Washington and California both uh, join, Oregon is stalled. Regardless, the state needs to uh, the approval of Congress and the president to enact a time change like this. And as a result, Oregon has been waiting on lawmakers in the nation's capital ever since. And as the fate of last year's bill suggests, political will to make the change has been oddly lopsided, as if most lawmakers uh, broadly agree but don't particularly care. Well, to complicate matters further, most of the political will has sided with making daylight saving time permanent over standard time. And while growing research suggests that the time changes aren't good for our health, some researchers also argue that permanent standard time would be preferable over permanent daylight saving time for similar reasons, since it most closely approximates the human body's natural rhythm. All of that to say, I feel like I need a nap. Anyway, we'll keep you posted if anybody actually gets on this. California passes it, the lawmakers in Washington, D.C., of course, get on it. Well, a Russian military plane collided with a U.S. drone in international airspace over the Black Sea today, prompting U.S. forces to land the unnamed aircraft in international waters west of Crimea. U.S. European Command confirmed that the Russian Su-27 aircraft struck the propeller of a U.S. MQ-9 drone, which was on the routine mission in the international airspace when two Russian jets attempted to intercept it. Several times before the collision, the Su-27s dumped fuel on and flew in front of MQ-9 in the reckless, environmentally unsound and unprofessional manner. Well, this incident demonstrates a lack of competence in addition to being unsafe and unprofessional. Well, that's a quote from a spokesperson from the U.S. European Command. And in a statement, well, the Russian jets recklessly... Um, recklessness, rather, almost caused one of the fighter jets to crash. U.S. Air Force General James Heckler, commander of U.S. Air Forces Europe and 
Air Force's Africa said, however, U.S. and allied aircraft will continue to operate in international airspace. The U.S. has urged Russia to instruct its pilots to conduct themselves in an appropriate and not haphazard manner in the skies. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. A couple of great guests coming up in the second hour. I hope you'll still be with us. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later in the second hour of today's program, a conversation with Lois Anderson. She's the executive director of Oregon Right to Life. We'll talk about the Death with Dignity annual report released just days ago. We'll also talk with Mark Mayer. He is the William P. Harris Chair for Military History at Hillsdale College and the author of Triumph Reimagined, the Vietnam War, 1965 to 1968, the second in a trilogy of books on the subject of the Vietnam War. And he relates some of the uh, miscalculations and misinformation uh, from the Vietnam War, uh, urging leaders today who are making decisions about our involvement in Ukraine to consider as well. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. Well, Pope Francis says the church's thousand year practice of celibacy may be changing. Now, he's referring, of course, to priests, not uh, um, unmarried individuals who are not in the priesthood. Time for term limits. Well, after Senator Mitch McConnell's fall, Senate health scares have underscored the age of American political leaders. And by the way, Mitch McConnell was released from the hospital and is in a rehab facility at this point. Responsible development, Joe Manchin has flip-flopped on support for domestic energy production. And a potential theft, rather, the U.S. may have been scammed out of tens of millions of dollars by the Wuhan lab. The investigation continues. Modern journalism, an Axios reporter, is being blasted for calling Governor DeSantis DEI roundtable press release propaganda, saying, I'll see you in California. President Biden avoided reporters' questions on the bank collapses. Sean Hannity predicts that this could be the beginning of massive Biden banking crisis. Let's hope he's wrong. Calling it a cruel deception, parents pull their four-year-old from a religious school for promoting gender identity lessons. And Democrats are largely averse to banning TikTok for political reasons. The Wall Street Journal reports that many Republicans and some Democrats are clamoring for action to address the perceived security risk from Chinese-owned TikTok. But one political leader has been largely silent. President Biden, Mr. Biden and his aides have demurred when asked about potential actions to restrict TikTok, saying they're waiting for recommendations from the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S. or CFIUS. Uh, The uh, negotiations over TikTok have been dragging on since 2019, however, leading some Republicans to say Mr. Biden is ducking the issue because of the political risk of taking on a hugely popular app. Uh, which has more than 100 million regular users in the U.S. alone. A major unspoken problem for the president is that trying to force an outright ban on TikTok, as many Republicans are seeking, would sacrifice what is emerging as a vital campaign asset with the 2024 election season looming. Hong Kong and Shanghai Banking Corporation, or HSBC, bought the U.K. arm of Silicon Valley Bank. HSBC bought the U.K. arm of the failed bank for a symbolic one pound on Monday, rescuing a key lender for technology startups in Britain as the biggest bank collapse since the financial crash continued to royal markets. The deal, which sees one of the world's biggest banks with two point nine trillion dollars in assets, 
take the doom, uh, doomed British arm of the tech lender under its wing, brought to an end frantic weekend talks between the government, regulators and prospective buyers. The sale facilitated by the Bank of England in consultation with the U.K. Treasury will protect the deposits of SVB U.K. clients. The Treasury said in a statement, shares of HSCB. HSBC provisionally closed 4.1 percent lower on Monday. British Finance Minister Jeremy Hunt stressed that the deal ensures customers' deposits are protected and can bank as normal with no taxpayer support. Well, I'm not going to repeat this one on Pope Francis, but the Biden administration announced an oil drilling project, much to the chagrin of activists. The administration announced on Monday that it's moving forward with approving a massive 30 year old drilling project in Alaska over objections from climate activists and Democratic lawmakers about its environmental impact. The Department of the Interior approved three of the five drilling sites proposed by oil company ConocoPhillips as part of its Willow project in the northern um, uh, the National Petroleum Reserve or NPRA located in North Slope Borough, Alaska. The $8 billion plan led by Alaska's largest crude oil producer would produce about 600 million barrels of oil over 30 years and generate around 278 million, uh, I should say, million metric tons of carbon emissions, according to estimates from the U.S. Department of the Interior. The National Republican Congressional Committee released a list of 37 seats to flip Well, the uh, NRCC, House Republicans campaign arm, announced a list of 37 Democrat-held seats it's targeting to flip in 2024 as the GOP seeks to grow its narrow House majority. The seats include two being vacated by Democrats as they pursue Senate runs. The party currently holds a razor-thin majority in the lower chamber, and the GOP's campaign arm for House races hopes to maximize gains by targeting the most vulnerable Democrats. That's what these party organizations do. NRCC Chairman and Richard Hudson, um, a Republican from North Carolina, expressed optimism about the prospect of Republican wins in the next cycle, saying Republicans are in the majority and on the offense. Xi Jinping is planning to meet with Volodymyr Zelensky to discuss peace proposal. The Wall Street Journal reports that the Chinese leader plans to speak with the Ukrainian president for the first time since the start of the Ukraine war, likely after his, he visits Moscow next week to meet with Russian President Vladimir Putin, according to people familiar with the matter. The meeting with Mr. Putin and Zelensky reflect Beijing's effort to play a more active role in mediating an end to the war in Ukraine. A direct conversation with Mr. Zelensky would mark a significant step in Beijing's effort to play peacemaker in the country. It would also bolster Beijing's credentials as a global power broker after it facilitated a surprise diplomatic breakthrough between Saudi Arabia and Iran last week. Beijing has proposed a vaguely worded peace proposal. Zelensky has said he would be open to discussing part of the plan in the meeting with Xi, even as the West criticized Beijing for showing pro-Russia bias in the text. President Biden called blocking gender-affirming care, as it's referred to, close to sinful, but just close to. The president claimed it was close to sinful for states to block minors' access to gender-affirming care, effectively standing between children and trans activist medical professionals. Now, if it were gender affirming, in other words, if a male was receiving care for a male, that would affirm his actual sex. That would be one thing. But this is something quite different. And we don't know the long term impacts 
on uh, young bodies and minds of this treatment. Well, the president sat down with guest host Cal Penn to record an interview for Monday's episode of The Daily Show on Comedy Central. And the conversation turned to trans identifying kids and efforts um, being made primarily by Republicans in states like Florida to prevent children from making irreversible decisions about their bodies when they're still too young to vote. Joe Biden says uh, on The Daily Show, we're going on in Florida is, as uh, my mother would say, close to sinful. He wants to pass legislation to ensure gender clinics everywhere can continue to harm kids. The U.S., U.K. and Australia have agreed to provide Australia with nuclear submarines by 2030. The Australia-United Kingdom-United States Partnership has identified the optimal pathway to provide Australia with conventionally armed nuclear submarines by the 2030s with the best of U.S. and British technologies, senior Biden administration officials said on Monday. The AUKUS, A-U-K-U-S, partnership has been focused on providing Australia with nuclear-powered submarines, uh, capable uh, uh, submarine capabilities, rather, while upholding the highest non-proliferation standard. The partnership, which was created in 2021, has also helped to develop and provide joint advanced military capabilities to promote security and stability by countering China's growing influence in the Indo-Pacific region. A quote from Abby Libby I thought was uh, rather poignant. Drag is to women what blackface is to black people. A costume, a caricature, a mockery, a cheapening, a dehumanization. Enough said. We're going to take a break. We've got... um, Coming up in our second hour, a couple of interviews. We'll talk about the Death with Dignity annual report that was recently released. We'll talk with Lois Anderson about that and Mark Moyer about his latest book, Triumph Reimagined, the Vietnam War, 1965 to 1968, and what we can learn from how the U.S. handled that conflict and how the U.S. is managing its um, efforts to support Ukraine. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Looking forward to our second hour, a conversation with Lois Anderson of Oregon Right to Life, the Death with Dignity annual report, giving us the details of who among us ended their lives, sanctioned by the state. We'll also talk with Mark Moyer. He's the author of Triumph Reimagined, the Vietnam War, 1965 to 1968, the second in a trilogy that he is writing on the subject, the third yet to be released. Senator Mitch McConnell has been released from hospital to a rehab facility. The Senate minority leader was discharged from the hospital on Monday, nearly a week after suffering a concussion during a fall, and was moved to a rehabilitation facility for physical therapy before going home. McConnell is currently one of three senators out on medical uh, leave. Senator John Fetterman is being treated for depression at Walter Reed Army Medical Center. Dianne Feinstein is receiving is recovering, rather, after being hospitalized for shingles. Absences in the 5149 Senate, which has a Democrat majority, can impact the timing and outcome of votes in the chamber. PETA is asking First Lady Jill Biden to replace eggs in the traditional White House Easter egg role. And by the way, Easter eggs are not really related to the story of the resurrection. Just saying. PETA is calling on the uh, First Lady to exercise some foul-related restraint at her uh, White House Easter egg roll by ending the use of real chicken eggs. In a Monday letter to the First Lady, 
PETA President Ingrid Newkirk, she wrote that she wanted to respectfully urge the First Lady not to allow the use of real chicken eggs for the White House Easter egg roll, but to choose instead reusable plastic or wooden eggs or even lovely painted rocks or egg-shaped balls, all of which would last for years to come. In past years, tens of thousands of chicken eggs have been uh, donated by American farmers for various activities at the White House, kids-filled bash, including for rolling, decorating, and snacking. In 2019, more than 70,000 of those eggs were donated for the occasion. Now, given the price of eggs today, I'm not sure they could afford to have that many. But anyway, the Washington Examiner said in her letter, Newkirk also noted the high cost of eggs and the possibility of a worldwide avian flu as reasons to make a symbolic change from real eggs to fake ones for the annual roll and race. No word on whether or not the First Lady is going to heed that request. The most recent inflation report matches expectations. The inflation rate for February rose 0.4% and is up 6% over last year at this time, coming in almost exactly at what was anticipated for the change. The annual rate of inflationary growth has slowed somewhat, though we're still a long way from economic health. The Federal Reserve will meet this month and is expected to continue its recent practice and raise interest rates another quarter point, However, the recent collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank might induce the Fed to hit the pause button on another rate hike. Still understaffed after three years, three years after 15 days to slow the spread, the food service industry is still struggling to find workers. Nearly 60 percent of restaurants report being understaffed. As of last December, the food service industry had a whopping 1.7 million job openings, despite the fact that the number of restaurants currently operating still hasn't returned to pre-pandemic levels. So where have all the workers gone? Well, interestingly, the majority of these missing workers are millennials and Gen Xers, generational demographics that have both uh, listed a litany of reasons for leaving the workforce altogether, some of which appear more legitimate than others. What can be done to change this problem remains unclear, but the IRS wanting to keep tabs on tip jars um, certainly won't help matters. President Biden's gun executive order. Um, Joe Biden is infringing on America's Second Amendment rights yet again as he plans to sign another executive order, order rather targeting firearms. According to Attorney General Merrick Garland, the president's order will target gun dealers who break the law in an effort to move the U.S. as close to universal background checks as possible. The president's uh, executive order directs uh, Garland to clarify who is engaged in the business of selling firearms. As an administration official explained, number one, to make it clear that those who are willfully violating the law need to come into compliance with the law. And number two, to make it clear to people who may not realize that under the statutory definition, they are indeed in the business of selling firearms. They must become federally licensed firearm dealers and they must run background checks before gun sales. Well, that's essentially telling people they must follow the law. The order is also reported to include a safe storage directive. One thing's uh, for certain, this is not about keeping Americans safe, but about expanding the government's control over Americans and shrinking freedom. Well, on the Biden family update over the weekend, House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer revealed that for individuals for number four, Uh, who had ties to the Biden family on their various schemes around the world are working with the committee. Comer further asserted 
So now we have in hand documents that show just exactly how the Biden family was getting money from the Chinese Communist Party. And I will tell you, it's as bad as we thought. It's very concerning, end quote. Well, Comer claims the uh, committee now has bank records in hand that demonstrate that Beijing was sending money to the Bidens. It will be interesting to see how Joe Biden attempts to uh, respond to this and his claim of no foreign business deals. And of course, we haven't seen what's being claimed. So until then, we just don't know. Governor DeSantis is fighting for kids. The Florida governor set the record straight by effectively turning the tables on the left media's intentionally misleading coverage of his book ban. Holding a press conference, DeSantis expertly exposed the blatantly false narratives surrounding his signing bills that aim to prevent pornographic and sexually explicit materials from being allowed in Florida's K-12 public schools. And let me tell you, I have um, looked into what DeSantis is referring to. This isn't just pornography light. This is graphic. It is entirely inappropriate, I would say, for most adults, but certainly for children. Well, standing behind a podium affixed with a sign exposing the book ban hoax, the governor began reading excerpts from several books that had been found in some classrooms across the state. Excerpts that were so pornographic and sexually explicit in nature that several news feeds cut away their coverage of the event. It was inappropriate, but somehow they would argue appropriate for children in a school setting. DeSantis contended exposing the book ban hoax is important because it reveals that some are attempting to use our schools for indoctrination. Since the law has taken effect, a total of 175 books have been removed from schools across the state, and 153 of those books were identified as pornographic, violent, or inappropriate for their grade level. Meanwhile, the media doesn't uh, bat an eye when there's a call to ban classic books like to kill a mockingbird from schools. The um, SVB, the bank, collapse may uh, only be the tip of the iceberg under the president's spending policies, an economist is warning. President Biden promises your deposits will be there amid the bank collapse, but you as a taxpayer will not have to pay for it. As if the banks actually pay for the insurance they have, that's passed along, of course, to their customers. Stanford University apologized after a conservative federal appeals judge is heckled during a federal society talk. All Democrats on the Homeland Security Committee pulled out from attending a hearing in the field on the border crisis. Michigan's governor admits some COVID restrictions didn't make a lot of sense, but it will be paid for by American taxpayers, the president says. Well, the Red Cross uh, map to... um, A welfare state, illegal immigration is costing American taxpayers billions every year. Yet, uh, rather than seek to alleviate the problem, the Red Cross is only exacerbating it by providing uh, packets that include roadmaps and guides to help them journey across Central America and Mexico to the U.S. southern border. According to the United Nations, some 7,000 migrants have died journeying through Central America to the U.S. from 2014 to 22. However, rather than dissuade them from attempting the dangerous journey, the Red Cross asserted, our approach to migrants is strictly humanitarian. We provide information about ways to reduce risk and where to find life-saving assistance in Mexico and Central America. The Memphis Police Academy cut corners following the beating death of uh, Tyree Nichols at the hands of five Memphis police officers. It has come to light that the Memphis Police Department years ago began relaxing its officer training standards in an effort to fill vacancies. In 2014, city leaders began slashing pension benefits in response to anti-law enforcement sentiments across the country. It was the beginning of the whole systemically racist law enforcement narrative. 
Yet the decision has produced a Memphis PD staffed with some officers who may never have become officers had the standards not been lowered. When the uh, diversity, equity, inclusion ethic is enforced, it results in greater suffering rather than justice. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break and we will return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, a conversation with the executive director of Oregon Right to Life on the Death with Dignity annual report, how it's being perpetrated in the state of Oregon. Lois Anderson will be my guest. We'll also talk with Mark Mayor. He's the William P. Harris Chair for Military History at Hillsdale College and the author of Triumph Reimagined, the Vietnam War, 1965 to 1968. Well, the Red Cross's map to a welfare state. Um, we discussed that just before the break. President Biden claims his quick action saved the banking industry and blames former President Trump for bank collapsing. The administration faces bipartisan criticism as regulators rush to stave off the banking crisis and massive group of migrants rush the El Paso port of entry, believing they could walk into the country. At least eight are dead after suspended suspected smuggling boats capsized near San Diego and a huge proportion of children pursuing gender transitions are actually autistic. Eric Swalwell wants to ban conservative news from the military and Xi Jinping begins an historic third term as China's president. China flexes its muscle, muscles rather in Latin America in the latest security challenge to the U.S. And in a bit of satire, President Biden makes monopoly money legal tender to pay the $6.8 trillion budget. Hate crimes jumped nearly 12 percent in 2021, new FBI figures show. And a Vermont Christian school has been barred from future tournaments after forfeiting a game against a team with a trans student. Women are now binge drinking more than men for the first time in history. Speaking of which, this day in history, 1794, Eli Whitney receives a patent for his cotton gin, an invention that would revolutionize America's cotton industry. 1883, Karl Marx dies in London at age 64. 1900, Congress ratifies the Gold Standard Act. 1907, President Theodore Roosevelt signs an executive order designed to prevent Japanese laborers from immigrating to the United States as part of a gentleman's agreement with Japan. 1962, Democrat Edward M. Ted Kennedy officially launches his successful candidacy for the U.S. Senate seat from Massachusetts, once held by his brother, President John F. Kennedy. Ted Kennedy would serve in the Senate for nearly 47 years until his death in 2009. On this day in history, 1964, a jury in Dallas finds Jack Ruby guilty of murdering Lee Harvey Oswald, the accused assassin of President John F. Kennedy and sentences him to death. Both the conviction and death sentence would be overturned, but Ruby died before he could be retried. 1967, the body of President Kennedy is moved from a temporary grave to a permanent memorial site at Arlington National Cemetery in Virginia. 1980, a lot Polish Airlines jet crashes while attempting to land in Warsaw, killing all 87 people on board, including 22 members of a U.S. amateur boxing team. On this day in history, 1990, the Soviet Congress of People's Deputies holds a secret ballot that elects Mikhail Gorbachev as a new powerful president to a new powerful presidency. 2008, Democratic presidential candidate Barack Obama denounces inflammatory remarks from his pastor, the Reverend Jeremiah Wright, who railed against the United States and accused its leaders of being on the September 11th terror attacks. 
2014, the West braces for a vote by the Crimean Peninsula to succeed to secede rather from Ukraine. Calling the results all but foregone conclusion, U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry urges Russia's parliament against uh, accepting any offer to claim Crimea as its own. 2018, tens of thousands of students across the country walked out of their classrooms to demand action on gun violence and school safety. The act of protest comes a month after the shooting that killed 17 people at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, Stephen Hawking, the best-known theoretical physicist of his time, dies at his home in Cambridge, England, at the age of 76. He stunned doctors by living with ALS, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease, for more than 50 years. Well, not long after threatening the existence of the gas stove as a hidden hazard in the kitchen, the Biden administration is looking to make doing the laundry more expensive and time consuming. It's all in order to conform to confront the global climate crisis. Well, manufacturers of these appliances had a, a brief victory with relaxed standards for certain machines under the Trump administration. It was a a, a rollback of the Natural Resources Defense uh, Council. Uh, called ridiculous, claiming the Trump decision was needlessly increasing consumer water and energy bills and climate uh, warming carbon pollution while exacerbating water shortages. The NRDC eventually sued the Trump administration, demanding action on that and other appliance standards. Clearly, the Biden regime got the memo. On the other hand, when it comes to washers and dryers, consumers demand products that actually clean and dry clothes and aren't a waste of money in the service of high energy manufacturers. And the manufacturers know this. Um, and that's why they're um, questioning the need for new regulations when appliances are already significantly more efficient than they were a generation ago. Well, the, the Biden Department of Energy claims that consumers will save $295 over the 14 year life of the new washer, but that estimate obviously fails to factor in the extra detergent and rewashing necessitated by loads of laundry that still reek. Well, a federal law passed during the Ford administration, the Energy Policy and Conservation Act, was the initial uh, camel's nose under the uh, regulatory tent for appliance makers, with nascent Department of Energy uh, created under Jimmy Carter, being placed in charge of the program soon after its formation. Well, since then, appliance makers have been placed under a labeling law. Those yellow stickers you see on all those appliances detailing their energy use is a part of this. And the Energy Star program was eventually created. Needless to say, appliances are far more energy efficient than they were a half century ago and in some cases are cheaper in real inflation-adjusted dollars. But the trade-off seems to come in an almost planned obsolescence where appliances that are smarter, uh, thanks to all their computer programming, seem to barely make it to the end of their extended warranties before going haywire. Meanwhile, millions of garages and basements have dumb 30-year-old backup refrigerators and 20-year-old washer-dryer combos that, well, are still going strong. That's the way of things. Well, the Biden washing machine rules are part of a mandatory Department of Energy review process slated every six years, but apparently skipped under Donald Trump as the previous review came in 2012. Now, while washer uh, manufacturers did um, uh, did get a break, the appliance industry would still prefer the rule period be lengthened or simply abolished. They keep tightening the standards, and I'm not sure their reasoning makes any sense anymore, says Travis Fisher, 
of the Heritage Foundation's Center for Energy, Climate and the Environment. Given the recent claim by the appliance industry that Biden proposed gas stove rules would wipe out 96 percent of the market, it can be safely assumed that washer and dryer manufacturers will need to completely retool their products by the time the proposed rule would take effect in 2027. The Energy Department admitted as much, stating that manufacturers may need to invest up to $2 billion over the next three years to have products ready for the new regulations. And the $295 savings the Department of Energy is promising you, well, it surely um, be uh, outweighed by comparisons, uh, by companies rather that, rather than eating their research and development expenses, will simply pass them on to you, the consumer. When the idea of gas stove regulation first surfaced a few weeks ago, uh, Nate Jackson wrote, there is no constitutional authority for the administration to regulate what kind of stoves Americans buy. Yet there's also no authority to regulate light bulbs or toilet flushes or any number of other awful policies implemented uh, by both Democrats and Republicans alike, end quote. Ultimately, we can't count on the regulatory commissioners to get our clothes clean, but those old school washers and dryers still do the job. And the extra dollar or two that they add to the utility bill seem, well, a small price to pay. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming here at the top of the hour. And when we return, a conversation with Lois Anderson, CEO of Oregon Right to Life. We'll talk about the Death with Dignity annual report. This is the 25th year of the uh, law and the report. We'll also talk with Mark Moyer. He is the author of uh, Triumph Reimagined, the Vietnam War, 1965 to 1968, and what our leaders today might learn from decisions made during that conflict to help them and guide them through decisions now being made with regard to Ukraine. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, you may not have been aware, but the annual Death with Dignity report has been released by the Oregon Health Authority. And here to uh, tell us about this 25th annual report on assisted suicide in the state of Oregon is Lois Anderson. She is the CEO of Oregon Right to Life. Thank you so much for joining us, Lois. Hi, Georgine. It pains me that we have to discuss this issue, but it is one that is... Uh, prevalent in the state of Oregon, and it tells us a bit, a, a little something about the state that we live in, as well as the policies and how they're impacting residents here with regard to the uh, the passage of death with dignity some 25 years ago or 26 years ago. Um, talk a bit about this report and what it is uh, designed to tell us. Well, it is an annual report that's released by the Oregon Health Authority, and so we're what it tells us is limited to the data that they collect. Um, and we look at it for um, any continuing trends or any changes in the data. Um, of course, there's the overall numbers of people who requested um, a deadly prescription. And um, unfortunately, we have a record number in, in 2022. It increased, um, that number increased by a, about 9%. Um, but one of the uh, continuing concerns that we have um, with the death, so-called Death with Dignity Act, I mean, other than the fact that I want to make it clear that we oppose this law and have since the very beginning, and that um, from a pro-life perspective, it is, it is wrong to empower 
anybody, especially physicians, to um, participate in the ending, purposeful ending of a human person's life. Um, and But uh, we also want to see if there are ways that we can increase protections um, as long as this is remains legal. And one of the issues that we've been continually concerned with is this um, abandonment by the physicians or the provider themselves of the patients as they're ingesting and or at the time of their death. And um, not only is this an issue for just um, you know, excellent health care, if that's, if that's what we're going to say that this is. Um, but there is no tracking of the prescription, which is basically, you know, poison, enough, enough poison to kill somebody after the prescription has been written and then picked up by the patient. So there's a, there's a, a large concern with um, a lack of, of tracking of that medicine because of that um, the drugs because the person could be taking it under coercion they could be taking it when they're no longer competent as we know um, sometimes people wait they don't take it right away um, they may store it for a while and so um, there's two concerns related to that and we're seeing that in increase um, along with that's increasing the number of people that are are not um, with a physician at the end of their lives. The the other thing that's increasing is um, the gap between the numbers of people who request the prescription and the individuals who actually um, pass away from the prescription. And so there's this this uh, number of prescriptions that have either been filled and they're stored somewhere or they have yet to be filled, but nobody knows what the status of those is. And both of those things are very concerning. Yes. One of the things that surprised me was the, the number of patients, if you can use such a word, um, who were not attended to by a physician, particularly the physician that administered or allowed the, the drug, um, they were not present at the time that it was taken. Well, if you're not watching this on a daily basis, which is, of course, most most people, um, they, I think that most people would assume that that would be the case, mm-hmm. that, that this would be something that you have a relationship with this doctor, you are in, um, you know, at the end of your life and have made this conscious choice that you want to, um, that you want to end, end your life rather than dying naturally, that the physician would be with you the entire time. But that the, in the majority of cases, that is that does not happen. In fact, it was uh, surprising to me that, in if I'm not mistaken, in most cases, there wasn't a relationship between the provider of the lethal drug and the patient who had asked for and would eventually administer that drug in the absence of that physician. So we, we tend to imagine that this there's a relationship there, that there's conversation and that there's uh, an agreement that, uh, you know, based on observation, that this is the right thing to do at this time. But that's that's simply not the case. It's much more utilitarian than that. It is. And there's a there's a wide range of of uh, the period of time that the the person has a relationship with the the provider. And um, one of the one of the really concerning upcoming issues is now the door has been opened a little bit and we're trying to prevent it from being opened wide 
to people coming here from out of state and the prescriber of that um, of that deadly prescription is not going to have a relationship at all from um, with that person from out of state. Now, there may be some exceptions mm-hmm. when you have like the doctors in Oregon and the patients in Washington, perhaps, because that's there's a recent um, court settlement that that is the thing that opened the store a little bit, a crack for people to come in from out of state. But that isn't that isn't the intent. Um, the intent is to spread the ability for anybody in the United States, and that's it's a national push. Um, for, it's to spread the ability for anybody in the United States to travel to a state where this is legal and um, pick up a prescription and either end their lives in that state or go home um, and, and, and end their lives. And there's an interesting little tidbit in this report that um, the report indicates that the data that comes in is this is how many prescriptions were written. And then there's a report of how many people took the prescription and, and passed away. And there's some information about, about their, their death. Well, if someone from out of state comes into Oregon, receives the uh, deadly prescription and travels to another state and passes and, and takes it there and dies there, there's no mechanism to follow up on that. There's no reporting on, on that death. And so we may have some under-reporting of out-of-state people because there just isn't that kind of sharing of information in between states. So um, we're, we're going to continue to have a lack of information about what's really going on. How many people in the state of Oregon received lethal prescriptions in 2022? In, um, in 2022, the, re- the number that received prescriptions um, was 431, and the number that reported um, who died from ingesting the medications um, was 278. Oregonians that are no longer with us. Um, That's right. And I, I know people frequently, I, I do get comments about, well, it's just hundreds, but we're talking about hundreds every year. And we're talking about each individual person has their own you know, experience and story and family and the impact of this decision that, that to end their life, um, it, it, has a, it has a real impact on, on their community and on all of us. Yeah, it absolutely does. What do you say to those who are concerned about death with dignity as it's practiced here in the state of Oregon? Um, I know we, the law is set, uh, but we certainly can keep uh, an eye on a neighbor. We can try to support those who are unwell. We can try to seek help for those who are depressed. What do you recommend for people who are pro-life and care about their neighbors, particularly in light of this report? Well, the first the first thing is to make sure that um, you and your family members have um, a legally designated healthcare representative, and that that healthcare representative um, you have not filled out the the forms in a way that limits um, their ability to advocate for you, and that that we can. We can give you some help with that. There's also, you know, if you have a family um, attorney, for all of us, if we have a will, we should. We also need to make sure that we have this healthcare advocate 
Um, and it's someone that you trust and someone that has the same values as you do. There is a, a tremendous amount of pressure in the medical community. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't use the word lightly, a, a corruption from the fact that we've had 25 years of legal assisted suicide, that it's just, um, it's infused as a legitimate treatment for people that are at the end of their lives. And so, um, and it can be, um, it can be presented in a variety of different ways that you're not ready for. And so it, it is really important, first of all, to take care of yourself and your family, and then um, to be looking at your community and your church and your neighbor. So many times um, the reasons, well, first of all, the reason why people request this is not what you think it is. It's usually a loss of autonomy. It's usually it's the top three reasons have to do with concerns about um, the burden on your family or loss of autonomy or not being able to do things that you enjoy anymore. So let's think about that and our neighbors. Maybe um, maybe they just need someone to talk to. They just need to be um, told and shown that they that they're a valuable person, no matter what their stage of illness or age or disability is. Um, and that's a really important thing for us to be aware of, especially as the pro-life community um, that we're expressing that to the to the people around us. And I think for the church as well. Um, yeah. And I think churches that I've been a part of have done a really good job of reaching out to people that aren't, um, that may not have the ability to come to church every Sunday or who may have lost a spouse. And we need to really lean in and continue to do those things and, and show them um, how valued they are. Absolutely. Well, Lois, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. Again, Lois Anderson, is the uh, executive director for Oregon Right to Life. And this is the Death with Dignity annual report. Up next, Mark Moyer. He's the William Harris Chair of Military History at Hillsdale College and author of Triumph Reimagined, the Vietnam War, 1965 to 68. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest is Mark Moyer. He is the William P. Harris Chair of Military History at Hillsdale College and the author of Triumph Reimagined, the Vietnam War, 1965 to 1968. It is the second in a trilogy on that war. He has recently, recently written an article uh, that answered the question why America should pursue a strategy most likely to end the war in Ukraine at an acceptable cost. Uh, The new piece in The American Spectator draws on the history of the Vietnam War and shows how the fog of war can impact strategic decision making. He joins us today to talk about that new book and where we stand in the war with Ukraine or war, I should say, on Ukraine. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. You know, it's so interesting, the connection that you make with the war strategizing that took place in the Vietnam War. And uh, the decisions that are being made now and the impressions given by our leaderships with regard to the war in Ukraine with Russia. Uh, Talk a little bit about the connection that you see in terms of leadership and how we can be misguided uh, unintentionally, perhaps, uh, and how we can learn something from Vietnam. Yeah, so those are excellent questions. And preface this by saying we have to be very careful about drawing parallels because 
usually situations have some resemblance, but but oftentimes they also have a lot of differences. But case of Ukraine, I think is different in that uh, it's less clear actually how this is important to U.S. national interests. And in Vietnam, one of the things I found, which ran against the conventional wisdom, is actually there was a strong strategic rationale, but President Johnson didn't do a good job of explaining it to the American people because he was focused on his domestic agenda. Now, President Biden, I think he too has not really done a great job of explaining this war. If you asked Americans, why are we sending so much money there? I think a lot of them would scratch their heads. Now, there's a a case you can make, uh, although I think it's in general a tougher sell because uh, Russia is no longer a superpower. In Vietnam, we were dealing with Soviets and Chinese, both superpowers. And uh, so there's more, I think it's more of a humanitarian and moral argument in Ukraine, which has some merits, but, but I think it's harder to convince the American people it's worth our, our blood and treasure. I think one of the interesting aspects of these two conflicts, one that we were directly involved in, the other that we're helping to supply in order to avoid becoming directly involved in, were errors made in leadership, errors in judgment that are, in Vietnam at least, only now um, coming to light. Uh, You wrote Triumph Reimagined as part of a trilogy to perhaps help us better understand what happened there as well as what could have happened there had uh, decisions been made uh, in favor of victory. Uh, explain to us why it's important to look back and to consider where uh, errors were made and how the information that was uh, those decisions were made on was flawed um, that led to um, a decision that ultimately meant we, we lost that conflict. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there are certain, I think, eternal truths in war. And so we study history to above all, to understand those. And in the case of Vietnam, one of the enduring truths, and this was first really articulated well by the German military theorist Karl von Clausewitz, is that the the concept of the fog of war, that essentially there is so much going on that you don't know, or you think you know, but you get it wrong. And people, some people have thought, well, with modern technology, we know much more. We, uh, but Vietnam, there was a lot of advanced technology, and yet 50 years later, we now are seeing that much of what people thought about the war at the time was wrong. And you had then, as you do now, you had a bunch of pundits and journalists who were professing to know all sorts of things. And uh, it turns out a great deal of that is wrong. And, of course, part of it is that your enemy wants you to uh, misperceive things so that you – you commit errors. So that's one of the biggest, uh, I think, lessons that we should be paying attention to as, as we are listening to people telling us how well uh, the Ukrainians are maybe fighting. You ask a, a series of important questions in your article that appeared uh, in the uh, American Spectator, and you suggest that these are questions that should be seriously considered as we move forward, and people across the political spectrum are skeptical about the massive aid that we're giving to Ukraine, not 
suggesting we don't support the effort, but questioning whether or not there is a U.S. interest worthy of that kind of investment. You ask, with the population more than three times the size of Ukraine's, can Russia ultimately prevail through bloody attrition? How much aid will other countries contribute to the combatants in the next year? What plausible conditions will uh, convince both sides to agree to peace? These are important questions. Are our leaders answering them uh, for the American people? And perhaps more importantly, do they have good answers to those questions that will guide them in the political and military decisions they'll be making moving forward, presumably in an effort to avoid a conflict where the United States is directly involved? Yes, well, there's, uh, of course, a lot we don't know um, about what's going on internally within the the White House, although the team that President Biden assembled doesn't have a lot of great military thinkers in it which is also what President Johnson had. He hired Robert McNamara, Secretary of Defense, who was an automobile executive who really didn't know that much about the military. Uh, It does seem that people were hoping that uh, Russia would have given up by now because of the losses they're taking. And I'm not sure they really figured out how ultimately they're going to work things out. Uh, the, The Russians... Again, sometimes we tend to assume they think like we do, but Vladimir Putin clearly has shown he's not all that concerned about the number of casualties he takes, uh, and which is a, a bit of a foreign idea to us. But if you look in Russia's history, uh, you know World War II, they uh, they didn't fight very well at the beginning, but eventually, through superior numbers, they just wore the Germans down. And it seems from what we're seeing from Putin is that. He, he figures that uh, because he has a larger population that he is eventually going to uh, just overpower the Ukrainians. And so for that reason, I think it is in our interest to try to uh, find some – encourage both sides to, to reach some peaceful resolution before it gets to a complete Ukrainian defeat. Well, again, returning to the book just released in January, Triumph Regained, uh, this is a, uh, the second in a trilogy. The first was released, uh, Triumph Forsaken, uh, re- released some time ago, the first volume of the three. You challenged the prevailing academic orthodoxy with regard to um, the prosecution of the Vietnam War. Why this series and what motivated you to revisit uh, the series with information that may not have been available some years back? I first got interested in this topic because I started meeting Vietnam veterans and they did not uh, conform to the stereotypes I was seeing on television. They weren't disillusioned, bedraggled, uh, suicidal, homeless, etc. And so that got me thinking, you know, what else about Vietnam have we has been misrepresented to us? And I spent, you know, spent now 30 some years doing this and have become more convinced than ever that most of the conventional narrative, which was basically produced by the anti-war movement, uh, is fundamentally flawed. And so this book, I pick up where the leaves off as U.S. troops come in in 1965 and find, again, there's just a, a huge number of myths out there that have been propagated. And uh, perhaps the most rewarding part of all of this is I get to hear from a lot of veterans who you know, writing to me and say, I'm glad somebody finally got the, the truth out about this because so much has been misrepresented. 
We're talking this afternoon with Mark Moyer. He is the William P. Harris Chair of Military History at Hillsdale College and the author of Triumph Reimagined, the Vietnam War, 1965 to 1968. We'll continue our conversation in a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Mark Moyer. He is the author of Triumph Reimagined, the Vietnam War, 1965 to 1968. Why did America go to war in Vietnam and what did our nation hope to achieve in this conflict? Yeah, thanks, Georgine. The, the fundamental reason was to contain communism. And you know, that part of the story in itself is well known. But what was controversial is whether or not we actually needed to go into Vietnam to do that. And there's been a lot of people who've dismissed the idea that that the future of Asia was at stake. And they point to the fact that after the war in 1975, most of the other countries don't follow the communism. And they use that to say, well, this shows there was no threat. And my counter argument to that is, well, 1975 is 10 years after we go in. And so you can't just assume that what happened then would happen in 1965. And so I go to show how, in fact, in 1965, there was a huge threat of communist expansion. And it's actually American involvement in Vietnam that will save most of Asia from communism. So you would argue that South Vietnam was, in fact, a vital interest to the United States at that time? It was, yes. And then as U.S. intervention causes changes, it saves uh, at least to the overthrow of communism in Indonesia. It causes the Chinese to turn against the North Vietnamese and the Soviets. Uh, as those things happen, then yes, South Vietnam is no longer as important to American interests. I do think it still was harmful to let them fall, and it led also to the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, which killed 2 million people. But uh, in terms of the broader objective, we are able to save most of East Asia, which has great ramifications today because that is now the number one battleground for our competition with China. And we've been able to hang on to all of these countries thanks to Vietnam. What was the status of the war when American ground troops first entered the fight in 1965? At that point, the North Vietnamese seemed to be on the verge of victory, and they had launched a large invasion of the South in early 1965, which has also been poorly understood. But uh, so Americans are, are rushed in to try to save the day, and there's a couple of decisive battles that take place starting in August of 1965 with Operation Starlight. And in each case, the Americans prevail, and this will then force the North Vietnamese to back off and shift to a war of attrition. One of the things I thought was um, most interesting in the book, and many of us believe this before you wrote it or before new information was made available, um, but you write that the consensus view of the Vietnam War tends to depict the United States military intervention as a hopeless folly and immoral war of choice that was doomed to failure and ultimately weakened our nation and undermined American interests around the world. Um, you argue, and I think rightly, that this view is wrong. Explain why that's wrong. And again, I think that might be surprising to some of our listeners who uh, followed this at the time uh, in the uh, midst of the war protests and under uh, the, the leadership that seemed to be vacillating. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, the part of the or one argument you will hear about why the U.S. went in was that it was uh, that, that the U.S. Lyndon Johnson were trying to uh, kind of show off and just you know, wield American power to uh, intimidate others. But we now know clearly from what's going on that that Lyndon Johnson really did not want to fight in Vietnam, and he's forced into it by this North Vietnamese offensive in 19. 19- 65. And we've also been told that the South Vietnamese government was corrupt and inept and they were just hopeless and that it was simply foolish as well as immoral to support them against the noble Ho Chi Minh uh, of North Vietnam, who was really more of a nationalist than a communist. And that whole line is also, uh, I debunk that in uh, both Triumph Forsaken and Triumph Regained, uh, that communists were Actually, real communists who imposed Marxist-Leninist ideology killed lots of people to do that. And our allies in the South were uh, certainly by no means as brutal. Now, was there some corruption? Yes. But I, l- I like to compare it to Korea, where at the same at the same time you have a South Korea, which has been maligned for being corrupt and autocratic. And if you look today, South Korea is one of the freest and most affluent countries in the world. And you need only look to North Korea to see what happens when you use a Marxist-Leninist system instead of a liberal democratic system. You argue, um, and we talked about it a moment ago, that the war was a strategic necessity, but that it could have ended victoriously had President Johnson um, heeded the advice of his generals. Instead, he listened to um, others who advised him to take a, a different course. And we sort of edged toward victory at one point, and then, the, then he pulled back. To, uh, again, I, I think this is important because it helps us to understand the pressures, I suppose, of uh, leadership, uh, Biden in this case, Johnson uh, then, in making decisions that have to appeal to the public, um, trying to find the right voices to listen to and moving forward. Can you talk a little bit about that strategic um, a win that we avoided because of decisions that were made and voices that were heeded and others that were ignored. Yes, the uh, Lyndon Johnson from early on in 1965 is being told by his generals that the strategy that he and Secretary of Defense McNamara are looking to pursue, uh, which is a basically just defend South Vietnam, is going to Uh, lead to great difficulty in the future because basically you're allowing the North Vietnamese to keep uh, attacking you indefinitely as long as they want to. And so they proposed a number of measures outside South Vietnam, including cutting the Ho Chi Minh Trail in Laos, the main logistical line, and uh, ramping up the bombing of North Vietnam. And McNamara repeatedly convinces Johnson that these things are not going to work and they're going to needlessly provoke uh, the opponent, our opponents in China and the Soviet Union. We now see from what we know from the North Vietnamese side, also some things that have come out from the Chinese and Soviets, that, that in fact, these measures would have worked and that uh, there was not this actual prospect of China and the Soviet Union coming in and they really wanted no part of a war against the United States. So there were, there were indeed huge opportunities missed to pursue strategies that would have either, A, just caused the North Vietnamese to capitulate or at minimum would have made the war 
uh, a much easier conflict for the U.S. military to handle. How do domestic politics and American public opinion impact the conduct of the war? Well, initially, the war is popular among most groups of the American population. Uh, the most interesting segment in this period is is the college campuses, because up mm-hmm. until the middle of 67, the college campuses are generally supportive of the war. And then you see this sudden shift in the middle of 1967, which I attribute to two things. One is the baby boomers are, are arriving on force. And then uh, the other is that they changed the draft rules to make it harder for college students to avoid military service. And so suddenly you see this great upsurge in campus protest, which claims to be sort of morally up, upright, but it's really motivated by uh, self-interest. Uh, but the rest of the country actually still is remains supportive through all the way through the end of 1968. And it, it's not the case, uh, as we've often been told, that the Tet Offensive in January 68 kind of turned the country against the war. Uh, the country is actually about as supportive in late 1968 as they are when the U.S. troops first arrived, which is especially remarkable given that Lyndon Johnson really didn't do a, a good job of explaining anything to the American people. Are we finding that um, under the current administration with the president, and you made mention of this earlier, the president is failing to really explain our involvement in Ukraine and to help the American people understand why so much of our treasure is being uh, given to that conflict. Do do people understand? Is the president doing a good job or has he fallen short in explaining um, our involvement there? Yeah, I think he has fallen short and in a number of reasons, of course, in general, he's not been very communicative uh, with the media or anybody else. And, uh, you know, he's at a period in his career where I think, uh, you know, it's safe to say he doesn't have a, the energy you would want of a uh, you know, commander in chief. Uh, I think also you know, it is, you know, a hard case to, to make um, because, you know, the United States, uh, you know, has other allies in Western Europe. And I think we, we presumably, you know, if the Russians were actually trying to attack one of the NATO countries, uh, we'd see a different response. But I think um, it's hard to c- explain why we would need, especially the U.S. itself, to get directly involved in Ukraine. And uh, people, I think, rightly wondering why the Europeans can't handle most of this themselves. They've got plenty of money, uh, but many of them you know, would rather not commit their own resources. But I do think it makes sense for, for us to expect more out of the Europeans. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break. We'll continue our conversation. Again, talking with Mark Moyer. He's the William P. Harris Chair of Military History at Hillsdale College and author of Triumph Reimagined, the Vietnam War, 1965 to 68, the second in a trilogy of books on the subject. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, continuing my conversation with Mark Moyer. He is the William P. Harris Chair of Military History at Hillsdale College and author of Triumph Reimagined, the second in a trilogy of books on the Vietnam War, this covering the period between 1965 and 1968. What were the consequences of America's defense of South Vietnam for the broader Cold War? Uh, did it have much impact on that um, on that uh, ongoing uh, cold conflict? 
You know, it's certainly of great benefit in Asia in terms of preventing the fall of other nations. It does in the short term have a negative impact in 1975 when America fails to stick up for its ally and it gives the Soviets and the Chinese reason to believe that America is weak and can be exploited and they they in the, during the Carter period we see a lot of Russian advances. I think there's some parallel there too with what we saw after the fall of Afghanistan. I think America generally came across as very weak in, in how we let our allies go, which I think probably did something to encourage Vladimir Putin to go into uh, Ukraine. Do you believe the war was a worthy but improperly executed enterprise? Um, should we have been there? Uh, and you've already made the point that we could have left as victors as opposed to a failed effort. Your thoughts about our role in Vietnam? Yes. One of the interesting things about the debates over Vietnam is almost no one, the people who say it was a big folly, none of them will claim, will argue that stopping communism in Asia was unimportant. And uh, it'd be very hard to argue that, in fact, because if you look at the world then, and certainly today, Asia is the area of most dynamic growth in terms of people and wealth and power. And so we, as a country, I think, had a great uh, interest in shaping the course of events there. And we did ultimately, they said, prevent most of those countries from falling to communism. I think if you had seen Malaya, Thailand, Indonesia, the Philippines, Japan, uh, following the route of North Korea or looking like Vietnam afterwards, uh, Asia would be a vastly different place. We'd have a lot fewer trading partners. We'd have to deal with a more aggressive China. And uh, so I think in terms of the the continued struggle for control of the world and economic power, it's been uh, hugely important that we've been able to keep most of these Asian countries uh, on our side. We're currently um, facing the possibility of a conflict with China that's allied itself with Russia, and we don't know to what extent and what that will ultimately uh, ultimately mean. Can you just speak uh, about our national security, whether or not Vietnam, and for that matter, our response in Ukraine and maybe even Afghanistan, has informed our would-be enemies, uh, future uh, opponents, Uh, about the United States' resolve to defend itself, its willingness to win a conflict should one arise in in, uh, the Asian area with with Taiwan um, and so on? Yeah, I think one of the the biggest challenges and one of the things that the president has not done a good job of explaining is, is the reality that China is our number one strategic rival now and to the degree we pour money into ukraine that is going to uh, reduce our ability to deal with china and the chinese seem to be catching on to this and i think they figure that by giving some more aid to uh, russia that they can uh, drain our resources even more i think they figure they don't need to provide the same level of support so it's a net a net positive for for them and uh you know we have 
you know, another difficulty we have, I think, is Biden has put America's credibility on the line in Ukraine. And if the United States wavers um, or if, say, we get to the point where you might have to send American troops in to save Ukraine, which would be a very difficult decision, uh, that is going to send signals to China. And I think certainly if they perceive the United States as being weak, that could be a trigger for them to invade Taiwan, which, you know, Taiwan, I think, is much more important to the U.S. than uh, Ukraine Mm -hmm. is. Yeah, but just the the minerals and uh, the resources they have there, which, of course, China would like to exploit as well. I know your first volume um, on Vietnam history, Triumph Forsaken, created quite a stir in academia. Uh, Explain that um, that stir, if you will, and uh, this second in the series and then the forthcoming third in the series, if you believe that will also challenge some of the assumptions and conclusions that have been drawn about that period of U.S. history and war. My interpretation in Triumph Forsaken and in the new book, Triumph Regained, is uh, runs contrary to the left-wing orthodoxy that has come to dominate American perceptions. And you had many of the people who've written about Vietnam were people who were protesters during the 1960s, and so they have a especially strong vested interest in the conventional wisdom. So a lot of them were not at all happy to have somebody telling them that this was all wrong, and it certainly had negative consequences in terms of uh, a career in academia. And uh, and unfortunately, it's not just limited to Vietnam War, but I know a lot of uh, very smart people who have PhDs, but who were seen as being too conservative and who ended up not teaching it at all in academic world and having to go elsewhere. It's part of a you know, just broader problem we have where essentially the college campus has become a one-party state that does not really have an interest in free and open debate, despite all of the lip service they pay to the idea of diversity. Yeah, the most recent example of judge on a, on a law school campus that was uh, literally shouted down by a member of the faculty. Well, the the book, um, the books, I should say, uh, the two in the series and the the third that's coming really do help us to better understand what happened there and perhaps to think about the challenges that leadership has in in making decisions about how to prosecute a war, the voices that they're choosing to listen to. Any advice based on our experience in Vietnam that you would give to President Biden uh, with regard to how he makes decisions about how we're going to support the, the, the Ukrainians in this conflict and the potential for conflict of our own? Uh, in in the future with uh, with China or for that matter some other country. Mm-hmm. Well, I certainly recommended that they solicit a, a broad range of views and listen closely to what the generals have to say. Uh, now, generals are not always infallible, but oftentimes they know things that the civilians don't quite understand. And if you have a president like Abraham Lincoln who really understood military affairs, that's one thing, but we don't have that. So you need uh, a president, A, and also some advisors who can help him comprehend all of this information and and not have a reflexive disdain of the military, which has often been a problem for the Democrats ever since uh, the Vietnam War. 
Well, I thank you so much for the book and for talking with us about it here today. I really appreciate your time and your uh, your effort. Well, thanks very much, Georgine, for having me on. Great, great talking with you. Thank you. Again, Mark Moyer, the William P. Harris Chair of Military History at Hillsdale College and author of Triumph Reimagined, the Vietnam War, 1965 to 1968. We're out of time. want to thank you for joining us. want to thank James Glenn for producing and engineering a portion of the program and Sam Maupin for engineering the remainder of the program. Thanks for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.